welcome. We are so glad you're here. I am so glad you're here. I am so glad I'm here. Mark uh, got in touch with me a couple of weeks ago and said, hey, we'll be out of town. Uh, you've been ignoring us for a long time and people don't think you love them anymore and I'm starting to doubt it. So uh, would you teach my class? And I said, well, since you put it that way. <laughs> no, actually, uh, he offered and I said, yes, what are we talking about? And he said, oh, you know, it's something easy, something you can just handle kind of off topic, you know, you don't have to worry about it. Don't take any preparation. I said, okay, great. What is this? I said, John, John, the, the Bible, the gospel, the book of John. I said, great, love it. Uh, maybe it's John 3:16. you know, already got it memorized for God's love of the world right? Got it. Uh, love that. Uh, he said, no, no, it's, uh, it's more toward the beginning. Uh, I said, oh, okay, good. Maybe it's like, uh, you know, uh, well, okay, you know what it is. It's John 1, 1 in the beginning, in the beginning. So what a wonderful opportunity. By the way, did you get my manuscript? I, I, it's about 12, 14 pages, single space type, fully footnoted, seminary quality, graduate level. Did you get them? Okay, check your inbox. Keep checking, because eventually Mark will send you notes for next week that will encompass probably all the corrections of what I say this week. And by the way, I'm sure he's watching, so everyone say, hello, Mark, we miss you. We miss you. See you back next week. John 1.1 is one of the most important passages of Scripture, truly in all of God's Word, certainly in the New Testament, for sure in the Gospels. You've got to get this. You've got to get this right, because there is a question that is answered that the whole world needs to know the answer to, and certainly you and I cannot be wrong about that, and the answer is Jesus. The question is, who is he? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, uh, you can see, uh, depending on who you ask, you can get any number of, of different answers. I mean, to the secular mindset, Jesus was a good man, maybe even a great man, just not God, man. To the Hindu, he's a wise man. To the Buddhist, he's an enlightened man. To the Muslim, a man, though a prophet, inferior to the prophet Muhammad. To the Mormon, not God, but a man who became one of many gods. To the Jehovah's Witness, he's Michael the Archangel, perhaps a created being who became a man. Why is this answer to this so important question so important? Well, the sum total of my PowerPoint today, and somebody said, the guys were saying, hey, the Elmo's ready, you know, PowerPoint, all this stuff. Here it is. I'm just going to write this. If we can switch to this so I'll know if I'm writing it where I'm supposed to write it. Uh, my goodness, how's he do this? All right. I don't even know what I'm doing. So I'm just going to write it, and then we'll figure it out. You ready for this? Most important thing, you cannot be wrong. Hold on if you're not getting it about Jesus, hold on, I'll get you there, and be right with God. Did you get that? No? You didn't get that? My goodness. I bet there's a button that makes it do that. Does anybody know what button I should push? I just start pushing buttons. How about that? Huh? Yay. A professional button pusher has come to the rescue. Here it comes. Here it comes. Hold it. I can move it. Here it comes. Ready? No, that way. That way. Wow, how does he do this? I do not know. Wait. There it is. Wait. The Bible's in the way. Okay, let's get it right. There. All right. That's it. That's the note you need. Everything else. Everything else hangs on this. This truth you must leave with today. You cannot come and go if you don't get this. This is what you got to get. Have you got it? Say, I got it. 
You got to get this because it is so important. You cannot be wrong about Jesus and be right with God. Now, I I know some of you are thinking, what a very close-minded, sort of an arrogant thing to say. Well, if I was saying it about me, you're right. And Beverly would be up here revising my notes quickly. But I'm not saying it about me, I'm saying it about him. Now, if I say it about him, you might say, well, that's borderline. That's a pretty arrogant, close-minded, narrow-minded, maybe even bigoted thing to say. But I'm not saying it about him. I'm just telling you what he said about him and about what the word says about him. Now, here's how you want to sort of frame your thinking about that statement. You cannot be wrong about Jesus and be right with God. If Jesus is wrong, then it doesn't matter. And you're right. It is a terribly closed-minded, narrow-minded thing to say. But if Jesus is right about what Jesus says about Jesus, then it's the most obvious, practical, helpful, loving, inclusive, open-minded thing in the world to say what Jesus says, what the Word says, what John says. In other words, if if you're in a a burning building and and someone comes to your door, knocks on the door and says, the building's on fire, come with me. I want to help you. I want to save you. I want to rescue you. And you say, yeah, who are you to say? Well, if he's lying and the building's not on fire, then sit down and enjoy the show. (laughs) You know, I mean, the game's not over. The show's just started. But if he's telling you the truth and the building's on fire, his interruption of your afternoon is a very wonderful, kind, and open-minded, helpful, inclusive thing to do because he's telling you the truth. The building's on fire, right? It's just depending on whether or not. So that's what it hangs on. And when we come to John chapter 1, verse 1, and in the following verses in the coming weeks, we'll see, you just simply cannot be wrong about Jesus and be right with God. So let's get started. What do you say? John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was the Word in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Lord, bless your word and help us to get our minds around to the degree we can who you are in Christ Jesus with us. Help us, Lord, to understand who you are and to learn from your word today. Help me to communicate it in some way that will encourage our hearts and challenge us to live more faithfully, accordingly, to who you are. And we pray it in Jesus' name. So, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Do you know Jesus asked that question himself of his disciples? Do you remember Matthew 16? Jesus was up in Philippi, uh, and and there were all sorts of things going on there. There was temples, and there were um, icons, and there were idols. There was all sorts of religious practices for all these gods. And Jesus said to his disciples, Caesarea Philippi, he said, So, guys, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, his favorite self-designation, messianic claim in itself, who are people saying that I am? 
And they had some flattering suggestions of who he might be. But Peter, you might recall, he got it right. He said, thou art the Christ, you're the Christ, the Messiah, Christ is Messiah, Son, capital S, of the living God, which was a blasphemous thing to say if it weren't true. You're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. Do you know what Jesus said? Do you remember what Jesus said? That's right, Peter. And know this, that you didn't figure that out. But my Father in heaven revealed that to you, made it possible for you to see that, enlightened you so that you could comprehend who, in fact, I am. Peter got it right. Peter didn't always get everything right, as you know, but at that time, he was dead on. Oh, and by the way, uh, to help you feel a little bit better about you, the way I need to sometimes feel better about me, is one moment you can get it totally right, and the next minute you can be totally wrong, because it's just a lot later that Jesus has to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. Same Peter. Got it right. Got it wrong. Sound familiar? (laughs) Anyway, there was another disciple in that circle of conversation, and his name was John. And John heard Jesus ask the question and heard Peter's answer and heard Jesus' affirmation of Peter's response. And John, now years later, years later, really a lifetime later, after the Gospels, Uh, after the synoptic gospels, after Paul even in his ministry of church planting and evangelism and world change, after the epistle letters, after the letter to the church at Ephesus where John was and read those letters. So what we now have is is a a much deeper, if you will, explanation of Peter's explanation. What we have here in John 1 and beginning in 1.1 is a theology on the person and the work of Jesus. And you've got to get this because nothing else in John will make sense if this foundation isn't solidly laid. So in the beginning was the word, beginning. What, what beginning? Well, Mark, as you may know, in his gospel starts at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Luke, at the beginning of his life on earth with a, a baby laid in a manger in Bethlehem. Matthew begins his gospel at the birth of a nation and the coming of a people of God and of Abraham. But John takes us way further back, all the way back to the beginning. In fact, John takes us back to before the beginning because in the beginning is the starting point in one sense and in another sense it's not because in the beginning was. I mean, do you see that in the beginning which the word there, as you saw last week, arche is the Greek word. It speaks of origin. It's the beginning. It's what it is. I mean, you know, according to the Greek New Testament, it's the beginning. Some things just aren't that complicated. It's the beginning. But what gets a little more complicated to get our minds around is it's the beginning and not the beginning because it's not the beginning of God. Because in the beginning was. And that was is an interesting word. It's not in the perfect sense as if it wasn't and then it was. It's always was. It's in the perfect tense. It means that it was always was. In the beginning was means always was. There was no beginning of this thing that was in the beginning. I mean, it was the beginning of time as we know it. It was the beginning of space, I suppose, that we can measure and the dimensions of which we could somehow get our minds around. But before that, there was, in the beginning, was. That, that's a point of origin that this logos precedes. So it's not the beginning of God who has no beginning 
and who is not bound by time or space. This is so important to get our minds around. We tend to see ourselves and everything that we know and understand as existing in this box, our reality. But the reality is this, there is outside of our box, God. I mean, in the box is incredible. There's more in that box than we'll ever get around to, that we'll ever get our minds around, that we'll ever understand or comprehend. There's more inside the box. But if you ever think you're getting to the edges of the box and penetrating the corners of the box, you discover there's this God thing that doesn't exist inside of our box. In the beginning was. Now, I just want to tell you right now, Many of you are, all of you are so smart and you're intellectual and you're big-minded, broad-minded. You're students of the Word of God. I love that about you. But let me just go ahead and break it to you gently. Sometimes you just got to step back and scratch your head and say, wow. I'm just telling you that early in advance because as surely as we want to reach out and get God and drag him into our box so we can quantify him and describe him and understand him, if not control him, hello? We are reminded time and time again that in the beginning was, God was before the beginning. Therefore, Logos is not a product of time and space and creation within the confines of our box. Logos existed pre, pre-existed. You stay with me. I mean, just keep this in mind. Anytime you ever start to really struggle, your brain starts to hurt. Remember that God has graciously given us a three pound brain with which to comprehend the universe and beyond. I think that's about like this. I think it's two fists. It's a Take your head, take, go ahead if you don't mind. Hold two, do, that's your brain. That's the tool or the instrument that God has given us to wrap around eternity. <laughs> Forget it. Sometimes, I just want to tell you in advance, and it's times like this when in the beginning was, wait, how? From where? Who? When? Oh my goodness, this is hurting my brain. Yeah, it's because your brain wasn't made to comprehend the infinite. No, that's why the scripture says in Isaiah 55, 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So be comfortable in your box. And with knowing that God does not exist inside our box. Now he penetrates and enters our box, as we'll see in verse 14, but I can't give that away too much. The good news is we don't have to walk away in ignorance or in frustration because look what God has done. In chapter 1, verse 1 of John, God has put eternity within reach. Now, we have to stretch, and we have to strain, and we have to think, and we have to comprehend, and we have to contemplate. But God has put eternity forever within our grasp. We may not get it all, but we can get all we need and probably more than we can handle before this study is over. So sometimes we just step back in awe and wonder and marvel at the mysteries of God like this in the beginning was. From the Greek word, ami. Did you hear that last week? Um, You're going to hear it again. Ego, ami. Ego, I I am, that I am. It's God's name from the Old Testament in the New Testament in the Gospel of John. And this theology of the person and the work of Jesus in the imperfect sense, which means always or continuous, which informs us that Jesus is the eternal I am, the pre-existent, 
who stepped into our existence in time and space from outside. Now, this is really important. I'll just pause right here for a moment and say that this understanding is so essential and critical to understanding the entire divine implications of the New Testament and especially the Gospels. Uh, Let's take walking on water or feeding 5,000 men plus women and children from a little boy's lunch. Let's, let's uh, Let's take raising the dead. Let's take being raised from the dead. And you might say, Pastor, I appreciate your zeal. I love your passion. Boy, have you got an imagination, but come on. That just doesn't happen. You'd be right if everything that is has to exist within and conform to the laws of nature as we understand it. You with me? I mean, people don't just come back from the dead. Naturally speaking, it doesn't happen. So you may be right, or you might have to consider that if there is a God, then God certainly exists outside of our box. And God can step into our box anytime he wants and do whatever he wants. And when he does, we call those miracles. The virgin birth is a miracle. You mean just take forever to explain the virgin birth. And you can just say biologically, medically, it doesn't happen. No, but supernaturally it does. See, all things are possible with God. It's a miracle because God exists outside of our understanding of our existence, of our ability. And the laws of nature don't apply to the one who wrote the laws of nature. And resurrection? Well, of course God can do resurrection. Or he's not God. So if God, then resurrection. If resurrection, God. Because that's not natural. That can't be done. Something had to act on a law of nature to contradict it, to give life three days after death was clear. So we see in the beginning, our beginning, the beginning of our understanding, the beginning of our calendar as it were, though not literally, in the beginning was, in the imperfect continuous sense, the pre-existent logos, word as we have it translated, and we know what that is, what's a word? Say a word right now, any word, pick a word, say a word. Some of y'all are so spiritual, you said Jesus. Good answer. Do you know the Sunday school story, uh, the lady says, now, now, who, who, who was it, uh, what is it that, that has a bushy tail and, and, and climbs up trees and eats nuts? And, and the little girl said, Jesus. She said, what in the world are you talking about? I'm in a squirrel. She said, my mama told me Jesus is always the answer. So, <laughs> Jesus is the So, good job. You said Jesus is the answer. I love it. Love that. Whatever word you said, whatever word you said was a part of our system of communication. That word, composed of letters, with syllables crammed in there together in some meaningful way, in some language that you and I probably learn as babies and toddlers, expressed whatever it was in your head. So when I said say a word, you thought something, and then you used a word to convey the something you thought. You expressed yourself with a word. Okay, that's okay. That, that's not bad. That's, that's okay because words, and a word is a communication whereby the mind finds expression. So we use words, not only words, but certainly words to communicate with the hopes of being understood. But this word logos has a, a deeper, richer meaning. 
if you had been around in John's day and you were a Greek kind of person, or at least familiar with Greek systems and philosophies, then you would have understood this logos thing as the ultimate reason or rationale for the universe. Uh, something like this. What's the one thing by which we understand everything else? That's the logos, whatever that is. And so the Greeks weren't typically trying to identify, you know, these gods, that gods, lots of gods, doesn't matter. There is a logos. There is this thing over, under, and through everything by which we can understand, perceive, comprehend, be a part of anything, logos. It's the supreme thing called logos. That was a Greek thinking, but there's another way of thinking for which we have to give John credit because he's coming from a particularly Jewish mindset. And the Jewish logos, or in the Hebrew word, the word of God, is God's self-expression in and through his creative power. We see it in Genesis chapter 1, which, by the way, you will see many times the parallels between John and Genesis. As John's taking us back to the beginning by saying, in the beginning was the logos. So we're paralleling. Now, there are many other parallels, by the way, and they're fascinating to see what John was really seeking to accomplish here. But what we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, is God speaks. And God said in, in this void and dark and formless reality that was in the beginning, God said, spoke a word, let there be. And what was the first thing he said? Light. Let there be light. Because with light, we see and perceive everything else. So in the beginning, there's light. And in that light comes life. In the beginning. So John is taking us back to and with an Old Testament understanding of the stream from which this word flows, this word logos. And he speaks here, for example, reminding us of well, let's say Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? <laughs> you ready for this? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. That's power, folks. I don't know about you, but... Sometimes we like to say that God got his hands dirty. You know, he got down in the dust and he made the man from the dust of the earth. And we like to say, oh God, oh good God, he got his hands dirty for me. You know what? All God has to say is a word and it's done. Uh, there'll be other times to talk about the distinction in the creation of the man and breathing his own breath into him, the breath of life. But just know this, God speaks and it's done. You know, pause, application for just a minute here. The word of God that we have called the Bible is the word of God. So when you read it, you're hearing the voice of God. When you apply it, you're obeying the verb or the word and the voice of, of God. When you need it, you're comforted by the word of God, when you're challenged, when you're corrected, when you're reproved, when you're rebuked, when you're blessed, when you're encouraged, when you're sustained, 
when your needs are met, when you're well provided for, it's the word. Okay. What I'm saying to you is this. You say, God, do something. All God's got to do is say the word. The word. In the Hebrew mindset, in this, this Jewish perspective from which, which John is coming, he's able to say with the psalm, Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare. What is a declaration? It's a statement. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. But this word is more than just that first expression. The word is active and ongoing. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Isaiah 55, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. Amos, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel. Why, if we read from Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world, through whom he, the son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's powerful. And that's giving us a little heads up or a little preview in the next week's study when perhaps in the weeks to come maybe we get to verse 14 when the word is a person. Do you know that's coming? Can I, can, spoiler alert. <laughs> the word is personified. Even in the Old Testament, wisdom is personified. The word of God is personified. And nowhere like we have here in John chapter 1 that the word, verse 14, became flesh, incarnate. That the word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt among us. So you, you got to do that. I mean, you say, oh, you're getting ahead. Oh, you're stealing Mark's thunder. No, no, it's okay. You, you got to know who, not just what, the word of God is. John wants us to know from the outset that this powerful expression of who God is, is Jesus. Logos. Logos. So whether you're, you're coming from the Jewish Old Testament stream, the creative self-expression of God, or from this Greek philosophical stream, the ultimate rationale or reason, the one thing for all things, one thing is certain. The Logos was already before the beginning such that John can say, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. One thing is certain, that Jesus is the Logos or the Word of God in verse 14 who becomes flesh and dwells among us. So here's the point, got to make this point, got to get this. Jesus is more than a messenger from God. He is more than a prophet. He is more than a good example. He is better than a good lesson. He's much better than a great leader John wants to make the point, and we've got to have this point well later. The rest of this just won't stand up. Jesus, logos of God, the self-expression or revelation of himself in a person, Jesus is more than a message from God or a messenger from God. He is the message of God because he is God. I mean, God is expressing and revealing himself to us ultimately and completely and perfectly. 
And that word or that expression is Jesus. So for, for every cult and, and every world religion and, and for every group of people that gets together and wants a word from God or claims to have a latter or more recent word from God, can I just say God spoke. What did he say? Jesus. Enough said. That's it. Nothing else needs to be said. Nothing else can be said because you can't get any better than that one self-expression of divine revelation in its perfection in the person, logos, fleshed Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. To be the word of God, by the way, he has to be God. And you know, it's, it's common. It's, it's not unusual for somebody to say, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. Just stay in this class a little bit longer, will you? Uh, they put Jesus on the cross, by the way, for claiming equality with God, to be God. And John's laying it all out for us right here. In the beginning was what? Was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we have this with and was. Pros is the Greek word for with. It means face to face, towards, facing. There's a sense of presence and intimacy in relationships. So the logos was with God, with in the sense of distinguishable from, but with also as inseparable from, with, the eternal with, okay? Was God, on the other hand, so he was with God in the sense of distinguishable from God, but inseparable from God and was God, which is it? Answer? Yes. What do you do? Oh, my goodness, that's incredible. <laughs> oh, I can't get my mind around that. Uh, remember? <laughs> with God, was God. And, and by the way, those aren't contradictory or, or competitive. They are complementary. They, it's not either or. Was he with him or was he him? Well, yes. It's, the, it's this mind-blowing, by the way, next week come and, and Mark will fully teach beyond any possible lack of understanding to the fullest degree the doctrine of the Trinity <laughs> in 10 minutes or less. No, I'm just kidding. It'll take longer. If anybody could do it, he could do it. But the Logos was with God and was God. So John is, is, is giving us this because he was with and was, there's a sense of distinguishable from, but the same substance and or essence of, the same nature as. So while it may be we'd like to see here John building a case for the Trinity, that's really not the point here. The point is this, simply and profoundly, Jesus Christ is God, preexistent, eternal, before the beginning, such that in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos, so the Logos was with God and was God. He was in the beginning with God. There's tension and yet complementary. So John's point is simply and profoundly this, Jesus Christ is God. I'm just cutting to the chase. That's it. Jesus Christ is God. Preexistent before John, before David, before Abraham, before Adam, even before time itself, Jesus was. That's why one of my favorite statements of Jesus in the book of John is this. Before Abraham was, 
I am. I lay awake at night and ponder. Before Abraham was, I am. I am. Amy. I, I am. That, that imperfect, continuous, always has been, never changed, no beginning nor end. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Let me just suggest to you, if you're looking for a place where Jesus claimed deity, that'll do. <laughs> no mistaking it. That'll do. And John needs us to understand, we need to understand, we're going to understand the rest of this gospel of John, that the words and the actions of Jesus are, in fact, the words and the actions of God. Got it? Say, I got it. Oh, yeah. And so Jesus is God's ultimate revelation of himself and his supreme communication to us. God spoke, and his name is Jesus. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. So contrary to other systems of belief, doctrines, religions, cults, Jesus is not a created being who became some super-created being or superhero-created power. He was not created because he himself is the creator of the universe. It's not only that he was there, he was engaged. He was involved. John tells us that he was more than a present and passive observer. He is the active agent in creation. You say, but I know the Bible says in the beginning God created. Yes. So Jesus is God in action. Are you saying, Pastor, that God's not active? No, God is active. God is active in creation in and as Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Did we hear it? For by him all things were created. By him. Things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. All things were created by him and for him. Meaning he's the logos. He's the ultimate, ultimate reason, rationale. He's the one thing that explains everything. He's the one thing for which everything was created. If you're starting to get the point, if you just live with this motto, it's all about Jesus, you'll be getting close. It's all about Jesus. Uh, by the way, uh, you know, we have a sense of which we think of ourselves as being a story. I'm a story. I have a story. I'm living my story. No. <laughs> it's not my story. It's his story. And it is, God has graciously written us into this grand meta-narrative, this great story that's been writing from the beginning. In the beginning, it began, as it were, for us. But let me just tell you something. If you, if you want to get close to getting this right, as I'm trying to, Jesus is always the hero of the story. The story is always about and for Jesus. See, one thing John is really going to stress that makes John different than the other three is we call synoptic or similar or same gospels. John, having had much more time to process and many more years to work this out in, in a very real world, John wants us to know and understand Jesus is different. Jesus is more than a man, a good man, a good example. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He is the Logos, the full expression and self-revelation of the creative power of God himself spoken in the person of Jesus. And so, 
He's the originator. That's important for the next few verses. He's the originator. He's not created. He's not brought into being. He doesn't become. He already was. So he's not, think about this, when he comes, earning the right to lead. Jesus has nothing to prove. Say, why didn't Jesus do tricks when they asked him to do tricks? Why didn't he jump around and clap hands and do a backflip and a half twist and land on his feet when they asked him to? He didn't have to. What do you have to prove? He had nothing to prove. He already was. Say, but oh, but Jesus lived this wonderful good life. He he didn't, you know, do anything wrong, so he earned the right. No, no, he didn't have to earn the right. He did not have to, he had, he had the right. He's the pre-existent word of God in flesh. He came with all authority. He was the Lord. See, when we confess Jesus is Lord, doesn't make Jesus Lord. It's just us coming into agreement that he is Lord. You see the difference? I mean, this whole thing about we're just trying to make Jesus Lord. No, forget it. You don't have to. He is. Take the next step. The trick, the goal, the challenge is to surrender to his lordship, not to make him Lord. No, he is Lord. He is, he's already, he's always been Lord. Now, did he prove it? You bet. Has he earned it? Without a doubt. But did he have to? No. He came already as Lord. So that means that everything and anything and all things are already surrendered to or in submission to or under the authority of his lordship. Which puts you and me in sort of a pickle if we're living our own lives, doing our own things and not surrendered to the lordship of, of Christ. Let me tell you, all of creation, everything, anything is under his feet. Where are we? And who are we and what do we think we are if we can operate outside of this acknowledged lordship of Jesus Christ? The take-home points, which I'll just go ahead and give you now since I don't have a list. Uh, Here's one. Jesus is Lord. He's not waiting for, for you and I to make him Lord. He's waiting for you and I to live under his lordship so let jesus as it were be the lord of all in him verse four was life and the life was the light of men those two go together the light shines in darkness we're back to genesis one by the way let there be light god spoke and there was light now the important thing here is to understand is that you and i we are living in this fallen sense of death and darkness. You know how that happened. You read Genesis 3, right? You know what happened. I mean, it, God said, and then they thought about it, and then they did something different than what God had said. That's called rebellion or sin. That's a direct offense to God. That's, a, that's telling God to get off the throne. That's saying to God, you know what you're talking about, and I don't care what you said. I'm going to do what I want to do. And it's been rough ever since. (laughs) You know, they call it a fall for a reason. We fell. And we've been living in this state, consequence of fallenness, separated from God as we were created to be in intimacy, 
uh, we've been separated by sin, and so we are living out our own dying, is, as it were, for the wages of sin is death. And, and death, as you know, doesn't just mean the cessation of life or the end of life as we know it. It's separation in the sense that we will never be together again with God. We'll always be separated from God, and that's the ultimate death. That's the ultimate death. So the consequences of sin isn't measured to the end of our earthly life. It, it's eternal because we'll be forever separated, right? We'll never, so we won't know life nor have life and therefore there'll be no light and there'll be darkness. So there's the sense in which this life is, is from outside of ourselves because here's the problem is, is when you're a drowning person, you don't need another drowning person. Doesn't matter how many of you are there in a dark room. Somebody needs to turn on the, the flashlight or, or, or the light. It's, so what we need because of our state of fallenness and this sense of living, our, living out our dying in darkness, we need someone from outside of our darkness and, and dyingness to rescue us. We need. Now, if Jesus also, as a man, needs light and life, well, he can't help us. If he's so one of us that he's corrupted as we are, then he can't help us. If he's just a man... Like us, as you heard many of those comments in the video, like you've heard others say, if he's just a man, then, then he's, he can't help us because he's in here with us. But the power of the gospel is that God stepped out of eternity into time and space and became like us in order to rescue us from our dying and darkness. See, so Jesus is the one on the dock throwing out the buoy or the boat who's pulling us in. He's the one saving us. He's the one rescuing us. We use the word save, you know, we say, oh, have you been saved? What do I need to be saved from? I got a good job, I got a great house, fine car. We go on these great vacations. We're just living the life. What do I need to be saved from? Uh, friend, as good as it is, it's going to get a whole lot worse. For the wages of sin is death. So see, no matter how good it may appear to be in the moment, it's just not going to be good in the end. So we need to be saved from this perilous uh, future that is waiting for us apart from light and life. So Jesus becomes that outside, which means he's, he's, he's the originator, therefore the source of light and life. Here's what we have in John 1. We have this physical life as we see here. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And he was the originator, the creator. All things were created by and through him. So physical life. Do we owe our physical life to Jesus? Yes, because he's the originator. He's the creator. Then John 3, verses 1 to 15, we see that he is the source of and the originator of spiritual life. Nicodemus, a very religious man, a good man by all measures, a godly man by all estimations. Nicodemus, you need life. You must be born again, spiritual life. He's the originator and the source of eternal life, John 3, 16, for whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If we read about his conversation with the family of, of uh, Lazarus who died, and he says this, another one of those head-scratching moments. Do you believe? Yes, I believe. I believe in the end. Oh, yeah. No, Jesus said, I am. I am the resurrection 
and the life. He that believes in me, you know, how, though he die, yet shall he live. I, I was teaching that passage at my very first church, first time I'd ever taught on that passage. I got so excited. You know, back in the day, I yelled a lot. I know you can't believe that now. I just yell. That's how you make up for lack of content. Just And you know, poor people are like, this little boy, uh, five years old, one time he, he, he said to, I'm not sure if it's to Beverly or to me or to me and Beverly or to Beverly, and she told me, but do you remember what he said? It was Jonathan, it was my kid. Oh, I suppressed that part. My old child. He said, he said, what's daddy so mad about? <laughs> we said, no, that's passion. That's anointing. That's the Holy Spirit. No, that's a lack of preparation. <laughs> but hey, I had to preach three different sermons a week, every week, and full-time seminary student. So that's my excuse. I'm sticking to it. Anyway, I was teaching on that passage, and I said to our, our congregation of folks who were used to seminary pastors and preachers, you know, they'd had one every two years for a hundred years. No kidding. A hundred years. This was their ministry, and we were grateful it was. Wonderful church. And I was preaching that passage, and I said, I'm just here to tell you something today, folks. I'm going to make a grand announcement. Are you ready for this? Give me a drum roll, please. And they're all like, I'm never going to die, I said. And they went, I said, no, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not, I'm telling you, I'm not, this is, I'm not spiritualizing this, I'm, I'm not embellishing this, I'm not, I'm never going to die. I believe in Jesus, I've been born again, and I'm never going to die. And about that time, I could see the deacons beginning to gather, you know, like, uh, time for our next one. <laughs> I'm going to live forever, I said, like, oh, the cult leader is, you know, here we go, he's going to be some, you know, oh my goodness. And then I, start, I realized, oh my goodness, I'm not explaining myself well. So I said, I mean, like me, like, okay, so this body, you know, unless Jesus comes back sooner, is probably going to need to be taken off. You know, it's probably, I'm probably going to physically, in the physical sense, because I'm already dying, that dying death, because the wages of sin is death. But I just want to tell you, I've been born again. And as Jesus said, I am the, res that's the I am, the eternal, imperfect, continuous actions, never going to stop because it never started. I'm going to live forever. Therefore, I already am. You with me? Meaning way too many of us Christians are waiting to get to heaven to live eternal life. Can I just suggest to you, if the Spirit of God has been born in you and you've been born again, you're already living your eternal life. Now, I'm not saying something crazy about your body, you know, or I've, I'm not, I don't have any tonic to sell you after the service over here, okay? I mean, there's no miracle pills here. I'm just telling you that the Jesus who made you alive, who quickened your spirit, who gave you life and light, has already given you the privilege to begin already living eternally in relationship to the Father. So, by the way, we're already getting ready for heaven. Don't wait to live eternal life. It's already started. I think that's why in John 10, Jesus said, the thief comes but to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that may have life, and with regard to the quality of that life, not just the quantity, abundant life. Abundant life. That's the kind and quality of life we're supposed to be living, not just the amount of life. Way too many of us are looking forward to those high, pie in the sky days. Hey, what about today? Is Jesus living in you? Are you alive in Christ? Then you're already living in the light and life that Jesus is one as the source and the originator and brings to give and to share with us. He's the abundant life. John 14, he's the way, the truth, and the life. 
The key to that life is abiding life in Christ as the vine, the branches, and the fruit that we produce throughout this life. And light in him. Of course, there's a a mental aspect of that, but there's also a moral aspect of that. Can you see me looking at the clock? 10.57. Oh, my goodness. I got 27 pages left here. I'll just have to trust you to, to, uh, to read the manuscript I provided for you or to come back next week. No, I'm kidding. I'm ready to go. Mental aspect, I know you are. <laughs> Thanks for not saying amen to that. I mean, there's the clear mental aspect of darkness and, and lack of understanding. But when Jesus comes and the gospel is, is shared and we are awakened or enlightened or enabled to see that that's the light of Jesus. Have you ever had an aha moment? Have you ever had an aha moment? Has something ever not been clear and suddenly it became clear? It's like, oh, I know you hadn't had one of those today, but maybe you can think back. There was a time when I didn't get it and now I get it. It was dark and now it's light. It's like somebody turned on the switch. Yeah, that's Jesus. See, because we need the light from outside of ourselves to shine into our darkness, to illuminate our darkened minds and understanding so that we can see and perceive and understand. That's the mental aspect. And then there's the moral aspect of light and life in contrasting the kingdom of darkness. We're called to be light and children of light and not to walk in darkness. And Jesus brings that. When I need it, when I want, I have to turn it on because it's not within me, it's outside of me. But when Jesus comes, it's on and it's forever on because Jesus is light and life and he lives in us. That's why in John 8, you'll come to verse 12, I am the light of the world. And John tells us in these first few verses, that light is unstoppable. The light shines, verse 5, in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And let me just tell you, we are surrounded by darkness, aren't we? You heard Pastor Stephen mention in our prayer time earlier, uh, it just seems like the darkness is advancing. It seems like the darkness is encroaching. It seems like the darkness is overcoming. Do you know that's not the nature of darkness nor the nature of light? That's not how it works. The only reason light would, uh, darkness would be advancing or encroaching or seem to be overcoming is in the absence of light. Remember this. Light retreats, did I say that wrong again? Darkness retreats when someone turns on a light. So if it feels like darkness is encroaching, it feels like it's getting darker around us, what do we need to do? Turn on a few more lights. Brighten the place up a bit. Darkness will flee. Darkness cannot overcome light. It's just not in its nature or it doesn't have the capacity. It's not its ability to overshadow. You know how you... How you overcome light, you, you put it under a bushel. You, put it un- you hide your light, you dim your light, you turn off your light, or you only light your light when you're around other light lighters. You know, oh, it's so bright in here. Ooh, it's time to go outside. Listen, uh, as the darkness seems to advance, all we've got to do is, I mean, if you want the choir to be louder, you know, get more voices in the choir. If you want the night to be brighter, light more lights. Listen, the darkness around us is nothing compared to the light within us. Don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. The darkness hasn't got a chance given the light and life that is Jesus Christ in us, living and shining his light and life through us. Uh, by the way, I, I, I'm all for everything you do to change the world, but can I just tell you one of the most profound, the most profound way 
to make a difference in this dark world is to tell somebody about the light and life that is in Jesus and turn their light on for him. I'm so fighting the urge to do it. Should I give in? This little light of mine. Wait, 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 what? You know it? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. Oh, come on. If I'm humiliating myself to this degree, at least you can shout no. Hide it under a bushel. I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. That'd be your point for home. You're going to be singing that song all afternoon, and I, uh, I'm glad you are. <laughs> Because if you can see the light, if you understand the light, if you have the life that is in the light of Jesus, then you know this logos of God who is Jesus that has always been and always will be. Therefore, the light and the life that you have is absolutely invincible and unstoppable. It's unstoppable. So get happy and let your little light shine. Uh, point for home, single point, last point, and then we go. What do we say? Say it with me. Elmo, wake up. Boop, boop. Oh, my goodness, look at that. <laughs> I'm thinking about uh, getting one of those thingy bobs. Yeah. You cannot be wrong about Jesus and be right with God. But you get right with Jesus, and you'll be all right with God. Why? Because Jesus is God. Father, bless us as we go and thank you for your word to challenge us and stretch us and encourage us. And Lord, we walk out of here knowing that we are connected to the invincible, unstoppable, incredible light and life of God in Christ Jesus who lives in us. Lord, may our life reflect who you are and of our full understanding of who you are as the Lord of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.